Hey guys, and welcome to this Oklahoma City edition of the Low Key Podcast. If you haven't got your Low Key swag, go to www.lowkeypodcast.com to get yourself a t-shirt. They're on sale. This episode is sponsored by Justin's. Justin's creates a nut butter that's naturally delicious with flavors like maple, vanilla, honey, and my personal favorite, chocolate. And if you have a sweet tooth, go try their peanut butter cups which come in dark chocolate and white chocolate. So go to Justin's and get a tasty treat. Now without further ado, Coop Ale Works. It's nice, it's easy, it's low-key. Let's get started. Hey guys, and welcome to the Low Key Podcast. I'm here with Daniel Mercer from Coop Ale Works. How you doing, man? Great. Glad to be here. I'm glad to have you on. Um, you you took me in a tour of your of your facility and your brewery, and it's really cool. It looks really awesome. Um, I always love to to see the packaging cans. I think those are really cool. Um, it's like Laverne and Shirley every day. Yeah, most days. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about what started your journey into building Coop? Well, uh, it was always a, a brainchild of a, a trio of us. Um, we all met in 2006, and uh, one of us was a home brewer. The other two had different backgrounds, but I think it the premise behind all of it was just an attraction to craft beer, and in the very early stages of Oklahoma's craft beer market, uh, we were all interested in, in trying to uh, bring that culture to Oklahoma in a deeper sense, and the fact that Oklahoma City didn't have a packaging brewery was of you know really peculiar interest to us, and um, the idea just kind of grew out of that. And here we are, eight you know it's just more than ten years later from that point in time, but it really started with the way I kind of condense it and boil it down is it really started with an objective to create a brewery that Oklahoma City could be proud of, you know, a packaging mm-hmm. brewery that they could call their own. And at the time, you know, you could liken it to um, Anchor of San Francisco or at the time, you know, the Goose Island of Chicago, you know, pick your brewery in a big city. We wanted to create something that people could identify with. Um, so that was the original goal. Um, that was really what brought us all together and um, crafted the path. Yeah, because it's funny because when I think of Oklahoma City and when I think of breweries, I usually think of Coop. So, because I feel like you guys are kind of the staple and the biggest brewery in Oklahoma City. Right, and we were, you know, the first to market. We had brew pubs here, obviously, um, and there were there was a smaller packaging brewery that had a little bit different focus that's not around anymore called Hubert. And um, you know, Rick's impetus in starting his brewery uh, was a lot of inspiration for us, and he gave us, you know, some great insight early on. And frankly, he broke the mold and kind of got the legislature to move some things around so that, you know, packaging and production breweries could exist and thrive. So that was a long, long time ago. Um, But really being the first scale brewery to start in Oklahoma City, it gave us some advantage. Um, But we also, you know, we've always had a focus on the community since day one. You know, that's been a, if we wanted to build something that the community could be proud of, we had to make sure that we became an integral part of that. And, um, 
you know, being passionate about where we live and the culture uh, that we're a part of and what we're doing and how the city is growing has always been a huge focus for us. So that's, that's part of the, it was part of the drive, but it's frankly also why, you know, you see us uh, where we are and um, why a lot of people associate us with Oklahoma City. So. Yeah. How long, how long have you guys been around? We've been brewing commercially for eight and a half years since January of 09. And um, we have been in this current facility for about three and a half years. Okay, that's cool. So, and why did you guys kind of choose Oklahoma City? Um, that's where we all lived, um, frankly. I mean, that, that's the first, first point, I guess. Um, it's the largest population mass in Oklahoma City. I don't know that we could have started a brewery in a city we didn't live in, so that's probably, yeah. first and foremost, the big priority. Okay, cool. What... What started you to be into craft beer, or what, what got you into craft beer? Um, you know, really, I, I mean, to be honest, I didn't drink much beer or much craft beer, for that matter, um, prior to meeting my two co-founders. Um, you know, Mark was a home brewer, and he had been brewing for a couple of years in his garage, and um, that was kind of the impetus of my craft knowledge, was really... Um, <clears throat> You know, Mark and I and JD spent, you know, about two years planning and having beer tastings with our friends, and we'd bring people into back rooms and restaurants and just kind of explore the craft beer landscape uh, really outside of Oklahoma because it was very nascent in Oklahoma. So, you know, I think for me personally, what excited me about the industry was the collusion and amongst craft brewers, the the general information sharing and just the openness amongst other brewers, mm-hmm. you know, and for us to get inspiration, we didn't have a dogfish head next door. You know, we didn't have a local brewery that, you know, had any significant presence and was a point of inspiration. So, you know, really we spent our infant years learning from other breweries in other States and proximity wise, at least for me, the breweries that I got the most inspiration from were Colorado breweries. You know, they were easy to get to, they were close, and we've managed to, um, you know, build some relationships with other breweries in Colorado and, and watch, you know, them grow through growth stages and, and challenges that have been really inspirational to us. And so um, really at, at the core of it for me was watching the industry and the craft itself and, and bringing that to Oklahoma. Yeah, that's cool. You, you said there's some um, breweries that inspired you. Um, is there, in building up Coop, what are, what are some of the breweries that did inspire you and what are still, um, some breweries that are constantly inspiring you, motivating you? Yeah, I think, you know, early on, we're talking almost 10 years ago, you know, when we started thinking about this and and the root of, um, that exploration, I would say, you know, for me personally, Dogfish Head was something that, um, was just kind of this wild brainchild of Sam's. And, you know, Dogfish, for better or for worse, has made a, a giant stance. And, and some people don't um, necessarily, at this point in the craft game, you know, agree with everything that any brewery does. But, um, you know, Sam's pretty, uh, he's not bashful. Um, he's very forward. And, you know, thinking about what he brought from the experimentation side to the craft brewing scene and kind of disrupting traditional styles uh, being very flavor forward. Those are some things that were really inspirational. Uh, when you think about breweries in Colorado, you know, 
a lot of my personal inspiration came from my interaction with breweries, you know, um, and not necessarily their beers, but, you know, the breweries, although all of the breweries that I'm going to mention in Colorado have great beer, they've always made great beer um, Mm -hmm. and continue to do so. But, you know, the first brewery that I ever walked into, the first craft brewery was Left Hand. And, you know, when we walked in there at Left Hand with a pre-scheduled group tour, and we walked to the bar and ordered a beer and, you know, and signed up for the tour at the desk. And then somebody behind the bar realized that we were, one of us was wearing an Oklahoma City t-shirt and asked if we were the Oklahoma City guys. And, you know, and then we get diverted to a side room. We don't know if it was detention or what it was, but it was, <laughs> it was just a, you know, a room that they had, you know, they had prepped for us. And, you know, Dick and Eric, the two original founders of Left Hand Walk In and Joe Chiraldi, their head of brewing operations at the time walk in, and we spent about two and a half hours with those guys just walking through every nook and cranny of that brewery and asking questions and those guys quizzing us about what Oklahoma was like with regard to beer laws and the funny 3-2 things. And, and so just that experience of getting to interact with those guys was the thing that really set me on fire. Mm. And that entire trip, you know, we spent four or five days and visited about 15 breweries and, you know, we had the same experience, uh, albeit slightly different, at New Belgium and at Odell and at Avery, yeah. um, at North Star in, in Denver, um, which is eventually, coincidentally, was the brewery that we bought our first, first brew house from um, about a year later. So, you know, those experiences really are the things that have been influential for me. Um, and obviously, all of those breweries have been pioneers and groundbreakers in the brewing scene in Colorado. Yeah. Um, you know, I think more you know, altruistically, when you think about what's inspirational among other breweries are breweries that are, that are doing things right, not just on the flavor profile side and on the experimentation side, but also on the branding side, the culture and their community involvement. You know, you have breweries that execute branding very well. Um, New Belgium's an example of that. Um, Stone is an example of that. And those breweries have very iconic brands that they've developed and that's inspirational community involvement side um, is something that we take to heart and has always been a huge focus for us. So um, finding breweries that are involved in their communities that are making a difference. You look at New Belgium's Tour de Fat and looking at things they do to benefit the community and build more awareness around their passions of philanthropy. Yeah. Um, And, uh, you know, obviously the guys who are making good beer. And lastly, the culture side. You know, I think if we were going to identify a brewery that was most inspirational on the culture side it would probably be Avery Brewing Company in Boulder Um, and so you know you've been there and and you saw their original facility and how they existed for so long in that strip mall and to walk in there and see the everyday brewing operations and frankly the logistical struggles and um, but just everybody on that team is so bought into what Avery stands for and and what they're pursuing Um, and it's it's a, a giant family, you know, and that's what we're, uh, you know, kind of generally at the core of everything uh, working on here is building a, a big family. That's awesome. I, I love when breweries are um, intentional about, like, being a part of their community and, and trying to um, reach out to the community. Um, what, what would you say, how, well, how, how is Coop involved in the community of Oklahoma City? So from day one, um, we sat down and kind of identified some core areas of um, the nonprofit world that we wanted to focus on. So 
we have four primary or three primary cores and then an ancillary one. Um, but the three primaries on the nonprofit side are education, uh, pet welfare, and the arts. And so the arts community kind of as the impetus to all of that is always not necessarily an indicator, but it's always a good tie-in and a good dovetail into food and beverage. You know, if you look at art shows or you look at, you know, exhibits or artist openings, things like that, there's typically a local food vendor there, you know, whether it's a caterer or a chef from a local restaurant or a winery or a brewery, um, that dovetail in the arts fits really well because, you know, what we're doing and what we're creating is art, you know, it's, mm -hmm. there's a lot of science, um, but there's uh, a lot of unpredictability to the early stages of any beer development. And so uh, the arts community has always been a good dovetail for our industry. Um, and frankly, it gave us some good ends to the same mindset and what people were looking for. Um, and so the demographics were very similar. Um, education has always been a huge focus for us. And now we're starting to kind of transition or evolve that focus into our growth as a business and how we can assist um, the schools around the state, whether it's our brewers or our microbiologists or our lab people working with internship programs or um, working with the Science of Brewing course at OU or wherever it may be. That's cool. Um, trying to get involved there. And then last and probably the largest of our philanthropic components being pet welfare. Um, that's always been a huge focus. Our anniversary party every year is a benefit for the Humane Society. Um, we continue to be involved with several rescues throughout the state. That's awesome. And uh, that's always fun because it's, it's, you know, it's heartfelt. It's everybody engages, you know, whether it's a, a pony rescue or, you know, a pug <laughs> rescue or whatever it may be. Um, that, that's always really exciting and, and gives us an opportunity to, to give back. Um, and then lastly... While not purely philanthropic, one of the focal points for us, and I think for at least Oklahoma City and, and more so for the state in general, is just, um, you know, outdoor activities and healthy living. And that's awesome. Um, trying to promote, you know, outdoor activities, whether it's running, climbing, cycling, uh, backpacking, whatever we can be a part of, mountain bike racing, um, mountain bike crashing, whatever the case may be. <laughs> um, we're trying to set ourselves in the communities um, that can be inspirational for other people and, um, you know, other demographics in the community who, um, who are trying to target an evolution of Oklahomans outdoor living and, and, and quality of life. Yeah. It, it's funny. Did you, did you guys have like a pony rescue story? No, we don't have okay. a pony rescue story. Um, I can't even, I, I honestly can't think of a rescue that we've been a part of or that we've partnered with that's been outside of the kind of general pet scheme. I don't have okay. done any snake rescues or lizard rescues, but um, we've done some, uh, some stuff with um, a movie producer who wrote a, um, who wrote and produced a movie about the conservation and kind of um, decreased habitat for horny toads, you know, and um, so that's probably the strangest out of general pet scope thing we've done. Yeah, because you guys have a beard called the horny yeah, toad. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. so we did quite a bit of promotion with her. We did when she did her screenings in Norman, and it's more of a documentary, but it was a lot of fun. Um, so cool. Have how have you seen Oklahoma the beer scene, the craft beer scene grow? Uh, I mean, it's grown tremendously. Uh, I think 
you know, one of the things for us has always been to engage the consumer and even the people who weren't in our consumer base to try to educate them. Education has been a huge part of our growth, but I think even more so education has been a large part of other breweries' growth and the evolution of the industry, um, you know, letting people learn more about beer, giving them the opportunity to experiment, removing the hurdles and kind of the, the facade or the, the curtain behind or the curtain in front of the, the Wizard of Oz, if you will. Um, <laughs> You know, get people out there to where they can, they, we can break it down and, and we can make it simple for them and it's not intimidating. And that, that has to be done at the consumer level. It's got to be done at the restaurants. It's got to be done. We've, we work on educating servers. We have restaurant groups in here doing tours. We have restaurant groups, you know, bringing their staff in to brew beers and things like that. Um, so education has always been a big component and I think all the breweries understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been able to see it evolve over the past eight, nine years or so to a point where, you know, our consumer base of craft beer has grown exponentially. Mm. Um, and the education side has also been a, an integral component in our liquor laws evolving, um, which is happening right now. And with the passage of 792 and 383 this past session, um, all the improvements and the opportunities that we'll see from that. But I would say the, the biggest thing with growth that we've seen is engagement, you know, amongst amongst the populace. I mean, the people here in Oklahoma City, whether it be in Tulsa or Bixby or Ardmore or Duncan, um, you know, we have bars in, in small towns that are serving craft beer that would have never served craft beer, you know. Yeah. Um, and frankly, the, the brewery count has gone from two before we started to over 20 now in Oklahoma. So it's been, uh, it's been pretty fascinating. It's been inspiring. Um, it's challenging at times, but, um, you know, first and foremost, it's, it's what we had hoped we would achieve for ourselves and for the industry. Um, and yeah, we don't have the density of breweries that most states do. We're still at the bottom rung, but really all that means is that we have more potential and we have untapped potential that we haven't really dug into yet. Yeah. Cause Oklahoma's from, from the laws, it's taken a long time to, be able to um, develop and create some craft beers. Yeah. So I mean, you have 55 years of really onerous liquor laws um, that haven't been really conducive to um, making craft beer choices available. Um, so that's been, I, I think, probably the biggest issue. And in that, you know, in that history, you create what generally we call the kind of mid-continent lager market, you know. That's yeah. what people have historically consumed, and so getting them out of that trough or that you know that tunnel vision of you know light loggers, which uh, pick your poison, whatever that may be, or your passion uh, if you're in the light logger scene, but hmm. um, finding something else out of that and helping people evolve their palate and uh, presenting them with more choice and opportunity. Hmm. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. What was your first craft beer you ever had? Do you remember? Yeah, the first, I, I think technically the first craft beer I ever had was Shiner, and Shiner is still considered a craft brewery. Yeah. Uh, a very large one at that, but Shiner Bach, obviously, and I think for a lot of people, Shiner has a huge placement in Oklahoma. Um, they still do. Um, I'd say the second craft beer I ever had was probably Boulevard Wheat. Um, but the craft beer that really set me on fire was Dogfish Head 60 Minute. Mm. And it's still to this day just a... It's, it's a go-to 
if I if I want something to kind of reestablish my baseline and you know I'm buried in stouts or I'm buried in a you know in some kind of sour plateau in my timeline of a particular year or week or whatever the case may be um, for me dogfish head 60 minute is just kind of my it's my general palate cleansing rebirthing beer if you will just to yeah. kind of start myself over on a beer journey when I want to um, but yeah that's probably the beer that that really lit me up the most yeah, I like Shiner. Um, Fat Tire was probably my first um, outside of anything that was not Bud Light or Budweiser. Yeah, <laughs> and it's not in Oklahoma. And we both mentioned beers that are now available in Oklahoma, but previously weren't. Yeah. You know, um, so that just goes to show you how much people seek, you know, the reputation and the liquid of other breweries that are established. And, and hopefully that's what we're going after and that's what we're creating as an industry. Yeah. So describe some of your beers, um, some of your regulars, and then some of your some of your seasonals. Sure. Um, we make five year-round beers that are what we call strong, you know, over 3, 2, or 4% alcohol by volume. Um, you know, and our gateway beer has always been Horny Toad Blonde. Um, you know, after that, we've got Elevator Wheat in the mix. We've got Native Amber, which is probably... Of our year-round beers, the most complex from a malt and a hop profile. It's seven malts and six hops. Um, and then we've got DNR in that mix as well. Um, and um, what am I forgetting? I'm always forgetting one. It's probably, oh, F5. You know, that F5, one. Yeah, that, that's your biggest one. <laughs> um, which is obviously our flagship. Um, and that was a beer of those five beers that was the last one to be released. We didn't release it until... Uh, about a year and a half after we started, and there were a lot of things going on in the hot market in 2008 and nine that didn't really make brewing a West Coast-style IPA very feasible financially. But the other thing was we were kind of afraid that F5 would just not resonate well with Oklahomans. I mean, it is a bold West Coast-style, in-your-face, you know, up-your-nose beer. And um, it's, uh, you know, within... We started brewing and selling that beer on draft only in October of 2010, and within five months, it was our best-selling beer, and now it's, you know, our predominant brand. It's roughly half of our volume. Um, so those are the five year rounds. Um, they cover a gamut of flavors and styles. You know, what we typically tell people in a tasting environment is that we, we definitely know that you probably won't love all of our beers or you won't like all of them, but we hope you find one that you love. And we, we typically find that that resonates true or um, that comes true with most people. And, you know, we developed three different beers at the 4% ABV volume uh, or 4% ABV level to penetrate the grocery and convenience market really in anticipation of what was going to happen or what we thought was going to happen with 792 and the passage and the removal of the 3-2 law, but it allows us to set a footprint and get exposure to an audience that might not otherwise try our beer, but it also gives us an opportunity to craft and really the challenge to craft three beers that could stand on their own in the 3-2 market. And, you know, internally here in the development of those beers, you know, they weren't developed as watered-down versions of some other beer. Yeah. Um, they were developed <clears throat> to stand alone, and that's what they do. And um, that's really given us some good opportunities with special events and um, pouring beer and selling beer off-site through permits and things like that. And also, I mean, until... August of last year, we couldn't sell anything but 3-2 beer inside wow. the brewery. Um, so we opened oh, yeah. a little 
tap room, if you will, tap wall, an air-conditioned <laughs> miserable space we had about a, t a year ago or more um, before we opened the nicer tap room. And, you know, all we served were three, two beers and, you know, different infused iterated versions of those. Um, and the tap room traffic was pretty paltry, but serving strong beer as of last August has changed that quite a bit or as of August of 2016. So um, those are the... Eight beers that we make year-round, then we have four seasonals. Um, we have Alpha Hive, which is our double IPA brewed with orange blossom honey, Whoa. which is probably our... Have you had that yet? No. Okay. Um, so it comes out in February through April. It's uh, our probably our most critically acclaimed beer, if you will. Um, highest rated beer that we make. And we use orange blossom honey from Central California in that, and um, a boatload of it. It's a, it's probably the most difficult beer we have to make. Um, the honey, when it comes to us, it doesn't really come in a, in a pourable format, if you will. It's not like honey you buy in the little plastic teddy bear at Walmart. Yeah. It comes in a barrel, um, and typically we break it up into five-gallon buckets, but it's almost like a paste. Um, it's that solid. We stick it in the boiler room um, to warm it up to try to get it a little less viscous, but it's a painful beer to make, but it's a, it's a labor of love. And um, so after that, in the summer, we just released Saturday Siren this year, the Dry Hop Pills. Mm. And it's out May through July. And then we always have Oktoberfest. Oktoberfest has been a staple for us on draft every year almost since 2009. Um, and then in the winter, we've got Grand Sport Porter. Um, so those are the four seasonals. Grand Sport started as a year-round beer. Um, it's just a, it's a style that, you know, not a lot of people get committed to when it's 100 degrees outside. Yeah. Um, it's a really robust porter, and, you know, it was a pretty difficult decision to make that beer, to transition it from a year-round beer to mm. a seasonal beer, but we did that in the best interest of the beer itself and, and people's consumption and appreciation for it you know we want to make sure it's fresh uh we want to make sure we're not you know dumping beer down the drain because it's out of date um you know so we want to make sure that we could run that beer as fresh as possible every year um so that's why it sits in the seasonal slot and appropriately in the winter um so after that we've got territorial reserve which you saw the barrel room or the old barrel room the smaller one and um the Territory Reserve beers are really an experimentation around three primary brewing grains and then the fourth beer being the stout, which was the original one. So we've got the Imperial Stout, the Rye Wine, the Wheat Wine, and the Barley Wine. Have you had any of those? I don't think so. Okay. <clears throat> we'll, uh, we'll get you some to go before you leave. But those beers, you know, were originally... You know, they were the, the barrel experimentation in Oklahoma. The stout yeah. was the first barrel-aged beer made in Oklahoma, and, you know, it um, it kind of set us on track to be the first ones out the gate there, but it also gave us a lot of learning opportunity, you know. Yeah. The barrel game has grown tremendously in Oklahoma, uh, particularly with um, Prairie and those guys over at Chalk now. Um, and even Chase doing things up in American Solera. Um, but the barrel game has changed. I mean, it's, it's given us the opportunity to, um, to experiment in ways that we wouldn't have had otherwise. Um, frankly, this new facility and, and the, you know, the expansion of space we have here with the ability to hold, you know, now collectively probably 12 to 1,300 wooden barrels 
um, in all of our spaces combined, um, that's really set us up to make the territorial reserves, you know, dependably released every year. You know, make sure we can release one of the barley wine every year and one of the rye mm -hmm. wine. So those are on the quarterly schedule this year. This will be the first year that all four of them come out. So like in, in times before, we've made the wheat wine, but it came out once, and then we didn't do it again for two or three or four years, wow. which, you know, wasn't uh, wasn't ideal, but we had volume issues before, we, you know, capacity issues before we moved in here. So yeah, those are those are beers that are really we're really passionate about. They take a lot of care. They take a lot of planning. Um, they're constantly evolving. So the stout that you have this year is not going to be the same as the one you had last year. Okay. And the rye wine you have this year won't be the same as the one you had in 2013. Um, that's kind of fun. Um, to continue to kind of tweak those styles to where we want to perfect them. You know, maybe someday we'll we'll make them perfectly. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, every barrel is different. You know, every blend is different. Yeah. So they're going to vary year to year. So that's exciting, getting some vertical there and being able to sit down and, you know, taste a 2012 stout versus a 2015 versus a 17 um, is something that we've always been working toward. And so... Now we've really got that program lined up to where, again, being able to release those every year in adequate volume to make sure that, you know, Houston and Kansas City and our other markets actually get some of that. Uh, the majority of it will always go to Oklahoma. Yeah. But making sure we can send, you know, 24 cases of barley wine down to DFW um, is really fun because it gets our, our consumer base and our fans down there more engaged and... Um, they get to have that treat of something that's really rare and special. And then the last of the beers, uh, well, now we have one more, uh, the Casket Series, which is was kind of a natural evolution of DNR, um, which okay. is the fifth beer year-round that I didn't mention, our Belgian Dark Strong Ale. Yeah, um, I like that one. So the Casket, we've been aging in different barrels. We did a brandy barrel-aged one with cherries uh, earlier this year. We've done a rye barrel-aged one. Wow. Uh, that will came out about a week ago, and then we have a version of that right now, or a version of DNR aging in tequila barrels. Whoa! So that's uh, that's slated to come out, I think, in November. Okay. And that one's really exciting. Tequila barrels are always really wild. Doesn't really matter what you put in them. Yeah. Um, we've had some really exciting, really more limited run beers come out of tequila barrels, and so um, that'll be cool. And then we have probably one more, so can expect. I would say, you know, at least four of those a year, um, and they'll be evolving all the time. You know, we've got brandy barrels, tequila barrels, um, quite a few different wine barrels, um, different bourbon barrels. Obviously, there are, um, you know, both both on the red and the white side, on the wine side, we've got in the stable. So, um, and the last one is a series of beers that is uh, has yet to come out. Um, the first beer in that release is the one I showed you in the barrels in there, those eight uh, Chardonnay barrels. And so that mm -hmm. beer is going to get released probably in late October, is my okay. guess. And so that series, which uh, the naming of will go public sometime in the next month or so, um, that series is going to be really the epitome of experimentation for us. These are going to be things that we're not probably going to do again. Um, yeah. You know, I told you how long that beer has been sitting in those barrels and what the ingredients were. And, um, you know, that's something that we'll probably never do again. Um, it was a pretty wild experiment. And, 
we took a little bit of risk on it. Obviously, it's not a lot of volume, but um, it's maintained and, and kind of developed and evolved really well, that, so well that we want to share it as the, the number one, you know, in the series that goes out the gate. But these beers will be series numbered. You know, number one will be that particular style. Yeah. Number two could be something different. They might come in four packs of 12-ounce cans. They might come in 750-milliliter bottles or 375s that are corked and caged, but they'll all share the same branding. Uh, but they'll just be in different formats based on the beer. You know, we've already got plans for one that'll be out in cans next year. And mm. um, so these beers are going to be a lot of fun. They're going to be, you know, really in essence instinct, you know, and what we're looking to do. It's been a long journey for us. It's been a long haul. We, you didn't get the, uh, get the treat of seeing our old facility that we spent five years in, but it wasn't a lot of fun. Um, yeah. It was hot. It was cramped. We had, you know all kinds of capacity issues and we had some really subpar equipment but we thrived in that space and we set ourselves up to move here and after we got our feet wet and you know kind of got our sea legs uh, if you will we were able to bring out all the beers in cans and then go ahead mm. and get territorial reserve fleshed out but really set ourselves up for our regional expansion but also as well to to put ourselves in an environment where number one We've been able to hire and retain talent and people, and and um, you know getting people here that are going the same direction we are. And that's um, awesome. But in addition to the people, you know, now that we've got the people here and we've got the resources and you know the tools at our disposal, we've got all the things now to really do what we've wanted to do for a long time, and that is you know brew beers that you know we may only send you know sixty cases out the door of. Um, yeah. And it may never see the light of day um, outside of Oklahoma City and Tulsa, and that's perfectly fine with us, um, because that's where that's the market that made this business and made this brewery and um, and built our reputation. So that that series is going to be really excited again. It'll um, not to you know uh, drive anyone crazy with the, uh, the anticipation or the name <laughs> or the lack of. Lack of not bringing the name out there, but it'll go public in the next month or so, and it'll be really exciting. That beer will definitely be a beer that people will want to get their hands on. You will want to try to find, yeah, um, quickly, whether it be at the release party here or at your local liquor store, whatever the, that store may be. Um, so yeah, that that's probably the most exciting thing we have on deck, and and this is really something where everybody in the company has the opportunity to be a part of it. Um, we're not all brewers. I'm not a brewer. Um, and plenty of our other people on staff aren't. A lot of our production team are actually home brewers, and they've got disposal to use the pilot brewing system in the back. And, um, you know, we've been running little internal competitions where we'll pick a hop or we'll pick a style, and, you know, um, our one of our packaging techs will brew the beer, and we'll put it on the tap room, and then we'll take ratings and let it get rated online, and then we'll... Um, you know, two weeks later, we'll bring in somebody else and they'll brew a similar style and, you know, just kind of vet them up against each other just for fun. Um, the tap room gives us that opportunity too, you know, so mm -hmm. um, a lot more experimentation in the future and a lot more, a lot more adventure and into the kind of into the unknown for us and our entire team has the opportunity to, you know, sit down and, you know, hammer something out and craft something that they've thought about for two years or you know I've got a couple of ideas in particular that I've been thinking about for years that I want to come to fruition um, and obviously I'm not a brewer or a brewer so it's gonna help it's gonna require the assistance of everybody on on the team 
So this will be a it'll be a fun ongoing rolling project. Yeah. That we hope to grow. Yeah, that sounds like a a fun atmosphere to work in and and exciting and I um <clears throat> I'm always loving I always love like even in in the coffee shop world it's kind of similar to um the beer world um is the experimenting like just trying to figure something new out or trying to infuse something else which is really cool and fun and exciting but you you said <coughs> so did did you form like used to brew um before um coop became a like a a bigger thing and you got employees and stuff um i didn't so mark was the home brewer in the group and when the three of us met you know within about three or four months we started home brewing together okay so there was a span of about two years that we spent kind of refining recipes um many of which would become the basis for what we went out the gate with um you know native amber dnr uh were two of those um, Horny Toad and Elevator Wheat were developed later in the production path, but Grand Sport Porter was another one that yeah. we, you know, Grand Sport, Native Amber, and DNR are probably the three beers that we ran the most iterations of, um, you know, and became the baseline for what those beers launched out on the production scale. So, um, you know, if given, uh, given an improvised igloo cooler mash tun and a turkey fryer burner and some pots, uh, I could probably homebrew a batch of beer, but it uh, it would not be spot on. So <laughs> keep myself out of the brew house and uh, let Matt and Will and Blake, our head brewer, uh, take care of all of those duties. Nice. What what is your what is your favorite style of beer for you? Um, man, that's that's pretty evolving. Um, I would. I think if I if I had my choice, you know, at any given moment in time, my favorite beer style that we make is the rye wine, the Territorial okay. Reserve rye wine. Um, just the, you know, the essence of toffee and caramel without getting into really acrid malts like you would find in a stout, things like that. Um, more bitter kind of uh, darker black malts. You know, I, I really like. Caramel, caramel malts and, and darker caramel malts. Um, so yeah, the rye wine really resonates with me style-wise. If I were going to pick one of the beers that we make year-round, that is my favorite style would be Native Amber. Same thing. Mm-hmm. Just the malt profile and the flavor um, and the hops as well, particularly on Native Amber. So, well, what, what separates you guys, Coop, from any other um, brewery, or what makes you different? Um... You know, there are, when we started this thing, or when we were looking at starting the brewery 10 plus years ago, there were about 11 or 1,200 breweries in the U.S., and now they're, I think, in excess of 6,000. Um, so, you know, building a platform to differentiate yourself uh, is hard to do out the gate. You know, I think one of the things that, that worked for us day one was being first to market. Um, that's not mm. much of a differentiator now. Back then it was. Um and, you know, our presence in the community was an initial differentiator as well because, you know, we defined ourselves as the local beer. Um, yeah. That doesn't necessarily work as well now because there are 20 other breweries in Oklahoma or 20 or more, and there are, frankly, close to a dozen in the Oklahoma City area. Um, but the things that, that we have always focused on, we don't have a mission statement, and we don't have, you know, 
really aggressive slogan work anywhere on any of our branding. But I will tell you that we have a, a set of ideals and values that we work on internally or that we thrive by, really. Um, and those revolve around several points. I mean, one is that we brew full-flavored beer. I think um, everything that we brew has a flavor profile that has a punch to it. It has intent, you know. It wasn't, it wasn't brewed to fit some particular taste profile that we thought would be, you know, that we thought would fit a trend in the market, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, yes, Pilsners are... Uh, Pilsners are really hot right now. I mean, it's a hot yeah. style in the industry. People are, you know, a lot of people are moving away from higher ABV beers and kind of getting back to the quote, I hate to use the word session, but, you know, people want a style that they can sit there and drink several of without having to worry about a headache later or, yeah. you know, getting in their car or whatever the case may be. Um, Pilsners are really popular, but, you know, when we set out to build the Pilsner, uh, Will and Blake had a really, really defined parameter set that they wanted to build that beer around, and they had mm. thought about it for a long time, several years, and, you know, um, it, you know, Blake will tell you that the Pilsner, uh, the execution of it, having only brewed a couple of full-scale test batches, the execution of where that beer landed, uh, Saturday Siren, is as close to we could ever imagine would be possible. Um, so it's yeah. been a really great exercise and really satisfying to see that beer land exactly where, in particular, Blake and Will wanted it to land. Um, so getting back to full-flavored beers and the fact that you're probably not going to like all of them, but you'll love at least one of them um, has been a big focus. Um, you know, another differentiator for us has been our quality control program. Um, this is something that, you know, formally didn't really exist until about a year and a half ago, but our our secondary core focus behind making great tasting beer and full flavored beer has been to do it consistently mm. um, to ensure that, you know, the F5 you drink today tastes just like it did six months ago, you know, that it's got a dated profile and that it's not sitting on the shelf at 180 days. Um, you can't remove all the variables in the supply chain to make things perfect all the time, but you can you know, you can internalize practices to ensure that the beer that goes out the door here, you know, is two weeks old or, you know, three weeks old at, at, at the worst case. Um, so making sure that we can do it consistently and making sure that every beer that comes out the door has a quality level to it is another differentiator for us, frankly. I mean, we have uh, a full-time microbiologist on staff. We've invested wow. a lot of resources in the lab and, you know, it's not just Sean Sabuto in the lab that runs lab work. You know, every single one of our operations team members knows how to run different aspects of the lab. You know, whether it's, um, you know, checking DO levels in cans or checking for infections or ensuring that um, things are clear uh, with certain meters and, you know, the brewers looking at pH and things like that and, making mineral additives to the kettle and you know all of those things are part of the evolution of quality control and assurance and consistency and uh, repeatability that really don't exist at that level I don't really think anywhere else in Oklahoma um, and that's not because people don't want to do it but it's just an added it's just an evolution thing um, yeah every brewer eventually gets there hopefully um, it takes time it takes a lot of commitment um, and it takes resources too, but um, the commitment I think is the biggest thing. Um, you know, having a tasting panel in house and 
quality, you know, QCing every single beer that comes off our canning line on a hot shelf and a cold shelf and constantly mm. monitoring those flavors over time, um, you know, is a big part of what we do here. So those are some differentiators. You know, I personally think that, you know, from day one, one of the things that we've always focused on is our visual imagery and branding. Um, mm. We have really strong brands that stand alone. And the idea has always been to brand our beers and not our brewery. Yeah. Everybody knows, not everybody, but a lot of people know who Coop is um, and what Coop stands for. But, you know, the majority of everybody knows what F5 is. It's kind of like the analogy between Sierra Nevada and, and um, New Belgium. You know, a lot of people think New Belgium is just the fat tire brewery, you know. Yeah. Sierra Nevada both from their imagery and their relay of products, you look at Sierra Nevada products on the shelf and Sierra Nevada Porter looks like Sierra Nevada Pale Ale or looks like Sierra Nevada Torpedo just with different colors. You know, it's, it's, um, you know, it's a different branding strategy than New Belgium. And I think they're, that's not to say that it's, it's worse. There are equal success stories, I think, of branding the brewery versus branding the beers, and we chose to brand the beers purposely. Mm. And so, you know, having branding and imagery that, that connects with people you know, some of our things are very Oklahoma-centric. Some things are not. Yeah. Um, so striking a balance there to ensure that our beers are well-received um, in Oklahoma, but also well-received in Houston and um, things like that is, is a big part for me. Um, branding has always been important to us. Yeah, I always think it's cool when, when the beers are branded differently and stuff, and I love <clears throat> I love different imagery and stuff, and... and it gives you some sort of connection to the beer, which is funny. It's just branding, but somehow yeah, you feel connected to it. it what makes, it's what makes people connect. Yeah. Um, and you can get super, super nerdy into purchase decisions and yeah. you know, all kinds of research <laughs> and getting into people's psyche. We try not to dig too deep into that stuff, but you know those are things that matter. I mean, how thick a line is versus what color is here versus there. Those are all things that play into you know, purchase decisions and people's mental association, you know, yeah. we want to be, we've always wanted to be the beer that you associate with the good times, yeah. you know, the things that you're doing in your life and your quality of life, um, talking about slogans and things, quality beer for quality living is something that came about for us through a website redesigned several years ago. And it's not really an official slogan, but it, it resounds with us internally. You know, mm. we want to make sure that everything that we're doing is you know exciteful it's inspirational amongst our team because you know brewing f5 every day you know kind of gets boring at times um, yeah. but that's why we have things like territorial reserve and we've got this new series of beers and um you know that's that's what keeps things that's what keeps people motivated that's what allows us to retain the talent that we have on staff and yeah. um so yeah branding is a, is a huge part of what we do and we want the quality of that product to relay into what you're doing with it. You know, people gather around beer, and that is another point that we focus on is that the engagement that we have with people, whether it's the tap room that you just walked into. I mean, that tap room didn't exist seven months ago, eight months ago, yeah. and here it is, and hundreds of people flock in there every Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Um, we have a wedding. I mean, we have weddings in the tap room. Wow. That's, I mean, that's, it's that's absurd. Crazy. People yeah. are, it's not absurd. It's great. It's, yeah. um, but you know, two years ago, we would have never thought that could happen. We yeah. had a wedding in here last fall when we didn't even have a tap room. 
and they sat in these big throne chairs they brought, and they were sitting in the barrel room. Their ceremony was in the barrel room. That's funny. With the barrels, and they had 150 people here. I mean, that's that's what we're looking for. That's the type of engagement, and that's what is, at the end of the day, really gratifying, is that that's what people are associating Coop with, is they want to get married in the tap room. Yeah. You know, those types of things. That's that's awesome. I've, I never thought, like, people would get married in tap rooms, but that's... That's pretty sweet. It happens. Yeah. What would you say was the biggest struggle in creating Coop or a consistent struggle that you struggle with now? Um, man, we had a lot of struggles in the other building. <laughs> First five years were really tough. Um, you know, we were, yeah, I think every business, you know, uh, is truly undercapitalized. You know, we started the brewery with a with a, a small hill of cash that we thought was going to suffice, but things grow out of control and, you know, uh, you know, costs come up out of nowhere and equipment isn't free. Mm-hmm. Everything in the brewery is made out of stainless steel. Um, the biggest struggle we had for the first five years and frankly for even the first year we were here was keeping up with demand. And that's really frustrating, um, you know, to be canning native amber and horny toad and those be the only beers that we can, yet them not being our best-selling beer um, after F5 came out was pretty frustrating. But, you know, we knew that if we released F5 in cans, we'd never be able to keep up with demand. We'd never be able to supply that shelf volume. Um, and so we didn't put F5 in cans until we moved here. You wow. know, and we had a, we had a better setup and we had more volume. And so, you know, production capacity was the biggest struggle we had. Um you know, that that was that was pretty much resolved, and it is resolved, and we've got some really great forecasting capability now. We are very meticulous planners. I mean, every aspect of this business, for the most part, is planned um, with a lot of a lot of points of input, and a lot mm-hmm. of people around the table, um, and so you know the struggles now. Um, really, I think crafters in general are experiencing some saturation. I think the industry, I know the industry is experiencing it. Um, you know, and for a lot of breweries that are focused on their hyper-local markets, particularly newer breweries, um, I think the biggest, you know, the biggest problem for us right now is access to market in certain places we might want to go. Yeah. Um, you know, we're in six states right now. We have um, blanketed all of those states with the exception of Missouri, and there's just not a viable, you know, there, there are limited viable market pathways into places like St. Louis. We mm-hmm. sell beer in Kansas City, Missouri, but um, as you have, you know, five or six times as many breweries as you did 10 years ago, everybody's striving to get their beer. Not everybody, but most breweries are striving to move themselves into a position where they can go sell beer somewhere outside their home market. A lot of yeah. breweries aren't. I mean... For the breweries that are starting now with the ability to sell in tap rooms now in Oklahoma, that's a great model to pursue. Um, and, I mean, there are breweries here in Oklahoma City that, you know, have really local plans. Um, that's not our plan necessarily. It will always be the priority and it will always be the focus for us. Um, but, you know, we have a growth strategy and, and that's a little daunting at times, but we're working through it. Um, uh, the growth is there. Uh, it's just, you know, finding geographic contingencies and, and touching 
adjacent states, you know, all the yeah. way, and making sure that we can <clears throat> we can commit to the level of passion that we have for our brand in Houston that we can here in Oklahoma City. Um, so I'd say currently, I mean, we've been really, really, really fortunate the past two and a half years. Um, we have right now we have twenty three full-time people on staff and five wow. part-timers and an intern um, in the lab. And so, you know, two and a half years ago, we had seven people here. Yeah. And to try to think about what we've accomplished in the past two and a half years and, and what we see ourselves doing now and in the next 12 months would be impossible without the people that we have on board now. Yeah. It's crazy. Well, how could how could people reach out to you guys or see what you guys are up to. What are your social mediums? Um, we have Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, none of the three of which with potential of, with potential exception of Facebook, I am proficient in. Um, <laughs> but we have plenty of people on here that use Instagram and uh, Twitter. But um, those are the best sources, obviously. You know, it's, uh, our website is about to undergo a complete overhaul. Um, so you should see a new website before the end of the year. And um, with an operating beer locator, that'll work a little better. But yeah, find us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram. Um, we blast out every event that we do um, here in the tap room, uh, whether it's a release party or um, a nonprofit function. Obviously, we're involved in the community, so you're going to see all of those things. You know, there are, um, we have three sales reps in Oklahoma, one mm -hmm. of which lives in Tulsa. Um, I know you're in funny. Tulsa, so, yeah. you know, Jeff is up there, um, hitting the streets and working festivals and events. We're at the Tulsa tough and last year we were at the TU football games and he was at a balloon festival this weekend. I think they got rained out. Um, mm. I don't think they flew any balloons, but you know, we're always out and about in the community. So yeah. check out the Facebook profile, check out the events page on Facebook, and then very soon check out the new, much more functional and, uh, easier to navigate website that'll be up. <laughs> okay. So that'll be a, that'll be a big improvement. Um, I don't know if anybody looks at websites anymore, but we're going to build a new one. So go look, go look at it. It'll cool. make us feel better about the investment. Um, well, thanks for being on the Loki podcast and giving us a behind the scenes look at Coop. So and no we'll problem. We'll see you next time. We'll see you then. Thanks for coming by. Yeah. Later. Hey guys, thanks again for listening to the Low Key Podcast. want to thank Daniel Mercer from Coop Ale Works for being on. If you're ever in Oklahoma City, go drink a brewski, try an F5, or try their horny Cody. And go check out their social mediums, go like and follow them, go see what Coop Ale Works is doing. Guys, if you, you subscribe to the podcast, rate and review us. It helps us out. Give us five stars. Also, if you listen to the podcast and don't subscribe, subscribe to us on iTunes. That's it, low-key land, guys. Keep it nice, keep it easy, keep it low-key.